Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right, everybody, welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. It is Monday, the 13th of February in the great year of 2023. We are live right now on multiple streaming platforms. I'm excited to welcome my all-star cast of characters, Scott Kraft, Stephanie Allard, Terry Fletcher, Paul Spencer. Paul, one of these days I'm going to announce you first. So if you're wondering where Christine Hall is, Christine sent me... A message early this morning saying i can't make it today but she didn't go into any explanation well now i know why christine hall is on a coding cruise in the middle of the caribbean somewhere so uh when you talk to her um let her know that you know she was sorely missed all right so we got a great program for you today but before we get started um i want to send out my condolences to Paul Spencer, uh, for the tragic loss by the uh, Philadelphia Eagles yesterday, but he did make some uh, amazing-looking cheesesteaks. I'm sorry I couldn't catch the flight to uh, Milwaukee yesterday, but I will get there one of these days for that. I watched 17.95 football games only to have the .05 ended by a referee. What a great investment of time. All right, Terry Fletcher, I'm going to come back to you in a minute. Scott Kraft, how are you doing? I know you're uh, somewhere in Reno. Reno, Nevada, the biggest little city in the world. And Stephanie, you're dealing with a dog that has anxiety. (laughs) Yes, I'm home auditing away. (laughs) Good. And now, last but not least, Miss Terry Fletcher. And the reason why I saved Terry for last is because she's going to give us a soliloquy for the next five minutes on what transpired during the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services phone call. Uh, so she's going to save us all an exorbitant amount of time. And she's going to give us that five minute wrap up of what transpired during the CMS call to discuss the ending of the public health emergency, which I am quite certain was a waste of time. But go ahead, Terry. I'm going to turn it over to you. <laughs> okay. So CMS had a call today, 12 o'clock uh, Pacific time, three o'clock Eastern time. And they said they had over um, 6,000 people on the call and they take questions at the end. They took five questions. Okay, then. So here's what the <laughs> the wrap up is as far as rolling things back. Um, they basically, they're saying transitioning. That's what they kept calling it. So they said that um, late summer, the vaccine is going into the marketplace, but for Medicare beneficiaries, uh, it will continue to be at a no cost to them um, as long as they qualify. So that's going to be interesting. They, and I had the feeling they alluded to the fact it was a diagnosis qualify, so maybe chronic conditions. Anyway, um, that's going to continue to qualify until the end of 2024. 
The one thing that they also said, which I didn't like, was that um, the FDA has allowed the COVID vaccine to continue under emergency use author authorization until further notice, which means no liability. Um, the other thing is uh, report now. Here's one. So this didn't make sense. And if you guys can make sense out of it, you tell me. Reporting lab results for COVID testing, whether positives or positives or negatives. Once the PHE ends um, on May 11th, they said HHS no longer has authority to require negative or positive testing to be reported. So it's all voluntary. And majority of states said they will probably do it, which means no, they won't. And it means that they'll do it if they if they have time. And then it says that uh, when and so the stats will be skewed because then they went on to say that they will keep certain coverages and mitigate what happens with um, vaccines and testing based on their statistics. Well, if their statistics are voluntary and you don't get any negative testing and you only get whatever they decide to put in positive, then you don't have a clear picture. So I thought that was weird. Uh, 90 days, they actually put on the ASPR uh, site that is definitely ending May 11th. So anybody who says it's not ending, it is. So here's what they said about the waivers. This is a really big deal to the listeners. So any of the 1135 waivers, they said many, they continue to say, many will be in place. And I'm, I'm going to mention what's in place for telehealth in a minute. But this isn't a quote from Jean Moody Wilkes. She said, uh, you should discontinue the use of waivers when no longer needed. And I was like, oh, okay. And somebody actually asked a question that they didn't get to on that. So again, she said, discontinue the use of certain waivers when you no longer need them. That's a really big deal. Okay. So I think um, all of us are going to see some audits on that. They did reference the CAA, the Consolidation Appropriations Act for telehealth. And again, they said some services will continue through 2024. Licensing for your nurse practitioners and PAs are going to only be about states, not about what the federal government says. They said they have rejected the direct supervision. That was a temporary change to allow virtually once the PHE ends, not even till the end of the year. That is done. Nurses' aides, they have to be certified um, once the PHE ends, um, that four-month certification, even though the certified board is backed up, because they felt that now allowing that relaxed no um, certified to because of staffing shortages has now affected the health and safety of their um, stakeholders or subscribers, their beneficiaries. Uh, Medicaid, the, so what they've allowed during the PHE, some of you may not know this, but they've allowed Medicaid patients to keep coverage, Medicaid subscribers, I should say, even if financial circumstances change, they got a job or they didn't qualify anymore for that aid. But in April, for as of April 1st, now you have to qualify. And if you don't qualify, then you don't get to keep your Medicaid. Uh, contact information also must be updated by the end of April so that you can get your notices, so your patients get their notices. Otherwise, they will automatically be disenrolled. Now, here's one thing on the state flexibility or on the flexibilities. And they said this throughout the whole call. If a state, and they kept saying it, if a state chooses to offer the flexibilities under the waivers, then they then they can choose to, to offer that, but they will not enforce states to offer it. They will recommend that they continue to do that. They are sunsetting long-term care facility guidelines um, that they allowed under the temporary coverage because they felt that it was, again, hurting the safety of patients. And then here is the last couple of things. They extended many, and I'm air quoting, um, home 
it will continue to be the place of service that's okay through the end of 2024, but only for, they said, for certain telehealth services. Um, Medicare Advantage. Wait a minute, wait, 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 Terry, you said yeah. through the end of 2024? Yeah. The place of service home. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Place of service home. Thank you. I'm sorry. Yeah. About that. What did you think I said? Something else? I don't you know. don't know. Okay. Um, so uh, some of them. Yeah. So they, meaning you don't have to use an original site of a critical assets hospital or um, a facility. So you can still use the home until the end of 2024. I have the feeling in some aspects that will probably stick as a permanent, but don't quote me. Medicare Advantage doesn't have to follow Medicare. They said they are telling them that they're recommending they have to follow what Medicare offers, but they can leave it under their up to their own contract rules on how that is. And then finally, if you are providing audio only services um, that will, once the PHE ends at the end of this year, um, not 2024, has to be an established patient, not a new patient, as what it says in CPT. And so there we go. Okay, so I want to go back to one of the last ones that you just Ridiculous. talked about, which was um, allowing Medicare Advantage plans right? to function at their discretion as opposed to functioning under Medicare rules and regulations, which, if I'm not mistaken, somebody help me with this. How can a Medicare Advantage program that is funded by taxpayer dollars be allowed to implement guidelines that stray from the federal payer program guidelines, which are strictly enforced by the federal government, and they are supplemented by taxpayer you know dollars. This reminds me of how is it that it this, is now? This, this reminds yeah, me ahead, of please. there is a rule out there that says that employers have to offer health insurance to everyone. It doesn't say they have to pay for it. So to me, it reminds me of that where basically they're saying, here are the recommendations, here's what Medicare is going to provide for their patients and Medicare Advantage plans, we strongly encourage you to do the same, but they're not gonna require them to do the same. So that's why you have to read the fine print. I, it, it, I wonder, so, and and I wanna, yeah, no, I agree with you 100%, Terry, and I wanna open this up to you yeah, know, Scott, Paul, Stephanie, for your thoughts on this, because, you know, I want to be, you know, I'm just going to say it. So part of me wonders about the, the drive of the federal government to privatize healthcare, right? To turn it over to the insurance companies to administer because of their ability to turn profits and to maximize the profitability of the program. I mean, you know, any, any thoughts on this? I mean, I'm not looking for political commentary. I, I mean, I'm looking for anything where, you know, uh, Paul, you know, so, you know, you have a, a unique perspective on the healthcare system. Any thoughts on well, this? Well, um, having worked on that side of the fence for what six and a half years, uh, understand that the profit motive is always there. But I think at the end of the day, if we're going to have a useful reimbursement model of any kind when we look around the world the best reimbursement models are some mix of a government program mixed with a commercial insurance program the only big difference in the united states is the profit margins that are coming out of our insurance programs over here 
it it just tends to be enormous and you know don't even get uh, me started on ceo salaries but uh you know at the end of the day i mean for medicare to punt like this and say you know make it up as you go along when we all rely heavily on medicare regulations in order to be, to be the straw that stirs the drink trickling down throughout the rest of the insurance industry uh if they're ceding that uh seat of superiority voluntarily to commercial insurance carriers it does not bode well for the coverage of uh, many more experimental services or uh, types of services that we've been used to while there's been some administrative burden on the Medicare side, we at the very least know what the rules are. Uh, so uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, strike me as a very good development. Well, they also said we think, I think that's oh, they a said great we think point. Well, we hope that um, the Medicaid Advantage plans do what's right. What does that mean? Well, do what's uh, right? <laughs> I mean, you well, have to police them. I mean, yeah. Well, Medi <laughs> Medicaid, man Medicaid managed care is something of a different animal from Medicare Advantage. Uh, you know, Medicaid right. managed care. Uh, I think we've all been around long enough to know that a lot of these uh, Medicaid managed care plans, particularly when you get out of, away from the top two in each state, you're talking about a high degree of, uh, you know, what's the word I should use? Improvisation as far as... Uh, reimbursing providers for care uh, and trying to find a payment model that works, knowing that Medicaid is absolutely the worst insurance payer uh, state by state that you can possibly find. So, Scott, I want to come to you because I, I think you also have a unique perspective because for years you you worked as a journalist and you engaged in a lot of research a lot of interviews with respect to you know medicare and then medicare transitioning over to to medicare advantage you know what do you what do you see what what is you know what's your perspective on where some of this uh, you is know, I mean, and i'm going to post this comment my, my concern quick. is it creates a um a morass of different policies and procedures that you know one of the things that i've had conversations with clients before about Medicare policies and how Medicare policies work when it comes to things like opting out and not participating and things like that. And the one thing that I always say is, you know, for better or for worse, Medicare rules are written with the design that Medicare beneficiaries don't know anything. And they're basically a group of people who are susceptible for better or for worse to being like ripped off. So we put all these extra layers around what you charge and what the policies are. And I think to, to give this type of latitude across the board to Medicare Advantage. I mean, look, as an auditor, it's probably going to complicate my life just in terms of trying to figure out what some of the different payment policies or mechanisms may be for uh, elderly people trying to select these plans. It sounds awful. I, I mean, it's just not because there's just not, you know, I've always felt that the level of understanding that a lot of seniors have is maybe more than what some of those Medicare regs I discussed give them credit for, but these are very difficult things to navigate through and they're very difficult decisions to make. Uh, and trying to, you know, give, you know, give them more latitude. I mean, you know, there was a comment about what we hope they'll do the right thing. And I know my thought was, you know, for the shareholders, for, for the board, for the patients, 
uh, for who? Right. So, you know, I go back to, and then Terry, I want to, I want to come to you about, you know, um, this, this statement that's up here about the NCDs, but I want to go back to something that Paul said, which I think is, you know, profound, you know, the commercial insurance companies are notorious for claiming everything and anything is experimental and or investigational. And if we're leaving it to the discretion of the Medicare Advantage programs, and Terry, this may tie into the NCD comment here. You know, what do we, you know, what do we think we're going to see more of? It, it, is it going to be more denials? based on experimental and or investigational versus, you know, chapter three of the Medicare program integrity manual that says, you know, we, we can't deny something for medical necessity in a blanket, you know, way. We have to consider it on an individual claim by claim basis. I, I mean, that that's another one of my concerns. And Scott, you raised a great concern about what happens to all of these seniors that see J.J. Walker on TV and they see um, uh, the former Jets quarterback, Joe Namath. Um, yeah. Joe Namath. Thank you. See them all. Medicare offers you everything under your part C, right? You're going to get free meals, free transportation, free everything. And then, you know, that's Joe Namath. That's a lousy impersonation. And then you got, J, you know, J.J. Walker saying, I know might. It's all going to be right. I mean, this is frightening, right? It is. And it's it's sad because I know that comment right there um, about the adhere national coverage or required to adhere. You have to be careful how you word things because Medicare is careful. Medicare says some services um, states will be allowed to recommend it. We strongly <laughs> urge. We hope they will. You know, we don't we don't get that mandate. There's no mandate. And so it required to adhere to national coverage determinations. No, what the rule is, is that they were required to consider it as part of their contract. Because remember, there's still a commercial plan who has a rule over their own plan. They have to offer the services that Medicare um, offers as well. That's one of the things, you're correct about that. But do they have to pay them in the same respect? No. That's where it gets, when we go back to, you have to offer, and offer insurance because you've met the minimum standard but do you actually have to pay for insurance? So the, I, I just think when she said, I, I still, I mean, she caught, she said it three times that Medicare Advantage will have, will, will be able to use their contract rule. We hope they do the right thing, but we strongly recommend that they follow the Medicare plan. And, and I was just like, I mean, it, it sparked me. I, I, the hair on the back of my neck stood up because I was like, that's not what I thought Medicare Advantage was for. That was just and, the strangest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And think about you're a patient, you know, when you want something covered, you know, that's not an aspiration. Uh, that's not a hope. I mean, that's something that you're paying for out of, you know, you're paying a Medicare premium, you're paying a Medicare deductible, you're paying Medicare co-insurance, you're paying a Medicare co-pay if it's a Medicare Advantage plan. Coverage is not something that's aspirational. Coverage is something that you are depending on as part of a fixed income going forward. Uh, you know, it's insane. I'm interested to hear what Stephanie has to say. Yeah. No, Stephanie, my, what, what, what say you? Yeah. So I'm just sitting here and just thinking through 
<laughs> all of the troubles we have ahead of us at this point because you know things are all over the place and i already had that thought initially but this is just confirming that we're not going to have a way to sit here and even on this podcast and say hey for blue cross blue shield this is what you're going to do for you know this other plan this is what you're going to do everybody's going to have to do their own due diligence and we know that that's not done often um you know i i would think people that are here joining our podcast they're here because they like to learn they like to know what's going on but in our day-to-day -day audit work that we do with people and, and what we assist our clients with a lot of people just kind of go about the same you know they may have read an article they may have heard something but they don't sit there and dig into the payer policies and some of the questions I've had up to this point are really phrased in a way where they're hoping that I have like this one sentence answer for them, right? And it, it's just not going to be that easy. We're going to have to dig in. We've got to know um, what's in black and white writing first. And then we're really going to have to navigate all the subjectivity that this sounds like this is going to create. Here, Here's what's concerning to me. So as I'm listening to this, you know, I'm always thinking about things from a regulatory standpoint. So one of the things being an investigator for a composite medical board for a state, I get a lot of special investigative unit um, investigations escalated to me for review, for investigation beyond what they can do, and then for recommendations to the medical board for suspension, for, um, you know, further action we'll just say okay and for me i my big concern is for providers that you know if you look at the language from medicare and for most of the commercial insurance companies they say you should have known well here's the problem and i think somebody in congress needs to finally take this stuff seriously because I see a lot more problems for providers coming down the pike. I think somebody in Congress needs to say, all right, you know what? We need a timeout here. Okay. And I'm not somebody for overregulation, but I think we have such a lack of consistency in our industry between what is expected from a federal payer perspective versus a state perspective versus a state law requirement versus commercial payers. And I think the public health emergency exposed all of the discombobulation that exists within the healthcare industry. But where I think somebody from Congress needs to sit down is to be able to say, you can't say you should have known. Because if you think about a commercial insurance company, how many possible plans can exist within inside a commercial insurance company, right? You could have a point of service, you could have a, a PPO, you can have an HMO, you can have managed care, you can have self-funded. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, blue it's not just what's the difference between Blue Cross Blue Shield and Optum. It's what's the difference between Blue Cross Blue Shield, P PPO versus POS versus self-funded versus whatever it may be. This is where I think there's too many gotchas, and we need somebody serious in Congress to look at this and sit down and say, you know what? We got to take a time out here because I go back to Paul. We just made critical arguments in a um, pain management case that's about to go to trial here soon. <clears throat> and 
in that case, you know, the state has very strict requirements on how often and how many urine drug toxicology screens need to be done. CMS actually says that a provider has the right to bill a screening and a definitive test simultaneously if they believe that there's a, a rightful reason for doing so. But then you get it to the payers and the payers are disputing it. They're not willing to pay. They're making allegations against providers unjustly that they have committed fraud, waste, or abuse. This is, this is serious. And I, my big concern is, look, one, I'm glad that we're finally coming to the end of the public health emergency. But number two, I think we're going to go right into the wild, wild west because there's going to be so much in the way of questions from providers. And there's such a lack of information that's coming out from the payers on how these things are going to be. And then when you have the federal government saying, we're not going to hold them to it, but we hope they do the right thing. To Scott Kraft's point, the right point for who? The investor? The shareholder? The, 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 the middle managers who get a million-dollar bonus at the end of a year for you know maintaining profitability? I mean, this is... But it's also the same thing, too, Sean, when they, when they say things that are so... And I guess the word is is gray or ambiguous where they say certain services. All people hear when they say that is that all services. They're not going to go try to find a list and say, well, let me see if my services that I provide are on this list for telehealth, for example. Let me see if this applies to us. How are we actually dealing with supervision on incident two? And I mean, the list goes on. And so when they when they make the language and the the, pu the published guidance, even gray, it's so hard to get even upset with a provider's office or a hospital or anybody because their guidance is so um, all over the place. It, it, it's not clear. Yep. And unless you're crystal clear and what I like to call simple speak, not Medicare speak, it's very yep. hard to to kind of bring that to, to people's attention. But and, 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 and I'll leave you at this and then I want to go to another topic. Paul, you'll get a kick out of this. I haven't been able to share with, with you today what transpired, but we had a neurology group uh, in the Northeast that had to go before the administrative law judge. Now, we had one ALJ who was out of the Florida uh, market, and we had another judge who was out of New Orleans. The judge in Florida completely disregarded our arguments for how, the, and, and, uh, and I wanted to start with this because it's going to transition into the next topic, which is evaluation management services. But the, the AMA, and I'm going to make this statement, the American Medical Association has been crystal clear over the years. If they intend for something to be done a certain way, they will put that into the definition and or description of that CPT code. If it's not in there, such as if one CPT code says unattended and the other one says attended, we know definitively what it is. If there's two codes in a category and one of them says attended, but the other one says absolutely nothing, then it's unattended. We had one judge in Florida who disagreed adamantly with that. 
the judge out of New Orleans agreed 100%. The problem that we have is because these administrative law judge hearings are de novo, meaning that they are not bound to any prior rulings. Now, you could submit legal precedent, you could submit prior administrative law judge rulings, but they are not bound to rule on those. They can take them into consideration. But now we're stuck because the question becomes, do we appeal to the departmental appeal board? Or do we send it back to the judge who disagreed with us, send them the other opinion from the judge in the other area and say, hey, you got to look at it. That, and I bring that up because I worry about what's happening by saying, we'll, we'll leave it to the discretion of the Medicare Advantage plans, and we hope they do the right thing. Are you kidding me? All right. Um, so here's, here's where I wanted to go with this, and I, and I think this is going to be another part of a lively discussion. I want to talk about medically appropriate history and examination, okay? Because I am getting so many people that are DMing me on LinkedIn or they're sending me an email. I've, I've got some folks who have been in presentations in the past and they have my cell phone number and they're sending me a text and they're saying, what does a medically appropriate history and or examination mean under the 2021 and 2023 guidelines? I will give you my take on it. A medically appropriate history and examination is at the discretion of the treating physician. It is at the discretion of the treating physician to use his or her clinical judgment to make a determination as to what aspects of the history are relevant to the patient's presenting problems on that date of service. If the provider believes that performing a review of systems of one or two areas is sufficient, then that is at their discretion. If they believe that there's a requirement for seven elements of a history of present illness and they want to address the location, duration, timing, context, associated signs, modifying factors, then that's at their discretion. From an examination standpoint, from an objective standpoint, if they believe that they have to examine one body area, then that's appropriate from a clinical judgment standpoint. But what the providers need to take into consideration is generally accepted standards of medical practice. And the hard thing with that statement right now is that this stuff is still all new. And I think we are going to see a lot of folks in the near future as these audits ramp up and especially the targeted probe and educate through CMS. I think we're going to see a lot of nurse reviewers coming online and saying, I don't believe you've done a medically appropriate history and exam. I'm going to stop and I want to go around the table. So Stephanie, um, I want to start with you okay. first. What are your thoughts? Yep. 
What are your thoughts on a medically appropriate history and examination? So a couple of things here. What I what I tend to think of in this way is what the outcome of the encounter is going to be, right? So we've got providers who are sticking to the old style. They use the templates, way too much information. It doesn't help us out at all. Then we have some that are putting little to no information and wondering why we don't support their level of service. So to me, it doesn't come down to me personally picking apart, you know, what organ systems I wanted to see here or there. What I do is look for contradictions, but ultimately what I found when there's issues, it's surrounding medical necessity, which is very subjective. And the only way for providers to fight against that is to show us in their own free texted documentation without all of the macro statements, without all the templated information that we don't really care to see we need to know what's going on during the encounter and one of the things that i found with some of the clients that i have is that they don't realize that at the cms contractor level there is actually guidance that talks about documentation of those what we used to refer to as the three elements and i don't know personally if this is something that's hanging out there from 95 97 that they just have not updated yet but if you look to your state contractors, there's times where they will actually have in writing information that states that you must have history exam assessment and plan. And then there's also times where they say that you should have it. And if you don't, we could we could question the medical necessity. So that's really what I stand by when I work with my clients on this. But this is a really hard area now because they've left that up to a lot of question. We don't have things written anymore that say, you know, we need this many organ systems. Um, I know, Terry, you're experiencing this as well, but I've gotten the question a lot regarding the review of systems. Um, some of my clients just can't get over the fact that the doctor doesn't even want to have a titled section review of systems. From my perspective, a lot of the reviews I did prior to the changes, the pertinent positives and negatives were in the HPI already. So to me, I'm not necessarily looking for that heading if I can see it in other areas, but it really comes down to medical necessity and if we can see what's happening during the encounter. And usually when we can't, it's because they're trying to use those guidelines to their advantage and, and really cut back and, and show almost nothing about what's happening. No, I agree with that. So, yeah. So Terry, I, yeah, I go, go ahead. And then I want to go to, yeah, uh, I agree with Paul. that because one of the things that I've had to have a conversation with many providers is, and again, the review system, Stephanie's right. They just seem to have this sticking point. Um, and I don't blame them. They don't want to get into all of the components, the systems, the, the bullets, all that still, because that's no longer something we count as how we level their service. But I say, you know, what if you didn't do that and the patient's coming in with a complaint that has systemic involvement and there's a, a, a you know, pertinent positive there that you didn't get? Is that going to be on you or is it on the patient? I mean, you, you have to look at the situation when they come in. Unfortunately, and I, I do see some of the comments out there, you, you, you can't require it because it's not required in the rules. So you can give as much advice to the physicians and the providers at this point and try to talk them down and say, well, look at your record from a med legal standpoint. What can you support? What can, what are you, do you feel would keep you bulletproof, not just audit proof, bulletproof. To me, that means that if somebody's asking you for a note, 
somebody's asking you for an, an audit, whether it be TPE or, you know, you pick anything like that, you want to be like, oh yeah, yeah my, I'm an open book. You can see whatever, not go back and pull the chart and go, oh shoot, let me review this before it gets sent out. And so many providers are doing that saying, I don't want them to see this. I'm like, didn't you think about that when you were actually documenting to start? And so to me, it's, it's now more putting in their minds that this is a med legal document. Since we don't have published guidance, now not only do you think you've got a say in it, but now the payers can take liberties and say, well, this is what we think by our medical team here. And it's just going to be a free for all. So, you know, it, it's really just having to, to defend what you're doing. Scott, some thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I, I try to subscribe to in life what I call like the reasonable man theory of things where we should try to do things that uh, are reasonable. And, and one of the things that I've found myself saying to providers frequently under the old, old guidelines is that we are asking you or holding you to account in the areas of history exam for doing or not doing things that we would probably consider to be unreasonable, right? And so you might have a clinical scenario where the patient comes in with like a tennis elbow or something and it's a new patient, but you haven't done a head to toe exam. And so I have to downcode you because you haven't, you know, listened to the person breathe or you haven't like looked in their ears or things like that. So when it comes to history and exam, in some respects, the nice thing about these guidelines is we have a reasonable man guideline now, like do a good soap note that encapsulates the aspects of the history and exam that you feel are most relevant to the case. And as a non-clinical auditor, I have a, a very difficult time telling a provider that they've not documented a medically appropriate history or exam. Like who, who am I to say that, right? Like periodically I will make comments on an audit. I had an audit recently where the patient had a constellation of respiratory problems, but the provider didn't document a respiratory or ENT exam. They only documented the vitals and psych. And I'm like, well, that to me, seems to violate the reasonable man edict of what I would expect to see in, exam, in an exam for those presenting problems. And I think, you know, Terry talked about it a little bit in terms of it as a medical legal document. This is your work product of the things that you would be expected to record in history or exam based on the patient's presenting problem. Do you want to find yourself on a witness stand as one of the commenters just made defending a note where you didn't exam some examine something that was pertinent to the case? I mean, it's the I've told I think I've told this story before, but I still remember when I first started doing this work, I worked with a GI doctor under the old guidelines who documented copious exams, multiple organ systems, but never documented a GI exam, even though he was a gastroenterologist. And when I asked him about it, he said, well, you know, the thing about these exams is I don't want to worry about getting dinged for the exam. And the thing I'm most commonly going to have to change as a gastroenterologist and my documented exam is the GI findings. So rather than worry about it, I just don't document that organ system and I document all the other ones. It's not also not a reasonable man position. And so I don't want to oversimplify it. But to me, like when I think about what's medically appropriate, the questions I'm asking myself is, what is a provider describing in the symptoms? Does that carry through to the exam? And I do think, I think Stephanie sort of alluded to this is it will damage the medical necessity when we get to the risk area, if the exam isn't and the history is not filled into the specifics of the presenting problem. I, I think those are great points. Um, I, I do want to say one thing. So, you know, um, Tammy, Tammy Mason made, you know, a uh, post up here 
And I, I, I quickly want to address this because I want to segue with Paul into our next topic. Um, the coding consultants where I work state that the provider, the providers don't have to do an exam at all if they do a history since the description in CPT says history or exam. What it actually says is um, if, if you actually look at the definition, like for example, 99214, it's an office or other outpatient visit for the evaluation and management of an established patient, which requires a medically appropriate history and or examination and moderate level of medical decision-making. But when time is the driving factor, it's 30 to 39 minutes of total time spent on the date of that encounter. So even though it doesn't sound right, it is because it's an and or when it comes to the medical appropriate history and or examination. But there's one thing that I want to, I, I want to point out. And when we're talking about clinical review judgment, because we're talking about high rates of subjectivity, right? in medical decision-making, medical necessity, all this stuff. When you look at Chapter 3 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, there's a section in there that's titled Clinical Review Judgment. And what it talks about is the fact that it requires or involves two steps. First, it talks about the fact that the synthesis, the synthesis of all submitted medical record information, right, so we're talking about progress notes, diagnostic findings, medication, nursing notes are used to basically create a longitudinal clinical picture of the patient. And second, and this is the most important part for me, the application of this clinical picture to the review criteria is to make a reviewer determination on whether the clinical requirements in the relevant policy have been met. Now, the MACs, the CERTs, the UPICs, when they are dealing with clinical review staff, they have to use clinical review judgment when making medical record review determinations about a claim. But here's my concern. How can we have those working in general primary care making clinical judgment determinations about neurosurgical procedures? or about dialysis of patients, or about infusion of osteoarthritis in rheumatology patients. This is where it gets very great. But I want to transition over because I think this is a great time, and I want to start with you, Paul, and then I want to go to you, Terry. There are a lot of practices out there that, for whatever reason, believe that it is okay to have a protocol of batteries of tests or diagnostic imaging that they want done prior to the patient being seen by a physician. What say you? <laughs> well, here we go back to the medical necessity argument. Uh, no two patients, whether we want to believe that or not, and whether we want, whether the physician in his or her long time of experience wants to believe are the same. Uh, so, Anytime you're ordering diagnostics, it has to be unique to the patient's presentation. And this ties in to a medically appropriate history and a medically appropriate examination. Because if you are not 
if you are ordering batteries of tests before that patient ever gets in your door, you are not taking into account anything within their medical history, uh, you know, to make a determination as to whether that is medically appropriate to even order that type of testing. Uh, and we've seen two cases recently where we have had providers who are doing large batteries of tests uh, where we've talked before on this show about inference, where uh, perhaps we can infer from their chronic conditions that were seen at the initial visit that maybe these tests were medically necessary, but it sure looked a lot like the providers in question were just ordering the same types of tests for the same for any patient that came through their door. And that you know, that uh, looks like uh, the the old practice of uh, bill padding, uh, which is not uh, yep. looked upon very favorably. Terry, let me go to you real quick, right? Because you do a lot of payer audits, right? So as somebody adjudicating claims, right, or auditing claims to determine whether or not what was billed substantiates the, the need for a claim and whether or not that claim should have been paid. When you see new patients who are scheduled to come in and the physician is ordering, you know, a battery of laboratory tests and they want, you know, four view x-rays, but we don't even know other than the fact that it says patient complaining of a cough, right? Because that's what they gave to the scheduler. Where is the medical necessity in ordering all of these tests prior to the patient being well, evaluated? This is, this is the question. So this is textbook fraud, waste, and abuse. What happens a lot of times is, and just what you said, the call center for the appointment takes the appointment and takes down what the patient's complaining of. And let's face it, now patients are, first they have a complaint, they immediately run to their phone or their computer and, and talk to Dr. Google and say, what's wrong with me? And then they call and make an appointment and, and they seem to know more than the doctor a lot of times and say, this is what's wrong with me. We didn't get people showing up in the ER saying I have chest pain and that blanket statement of chest pain could actually be GERD. And we've seen, you know, patients get scheduled for a nuclear test because that chest pain prior to being seen by any physician, any cardiologist, anybody. And it turned out that they just have gastroesophageal reflux. I've seen it where a patient will present with generic abdominal pain and automatically they put in their gallbladder, you know, so they go to, they're going to go send them for an ultrasound. Turns out the patient didn't have just um, abdominal pain. They had upper epigastric pain or they had lower abdominal pain and it could be acute appendicitis. So these generic complaints that these patients have and to allow a call center of a non-clinical person who has not seen the patient to start to say, okay, well, we have standing orders or we're going to go ahead and schedule you for this. So you have that when you come in. I've had this argument with so many providers over, I mean, I've been in the industry 35 years and over the last 20, it's just been heightened where they're like, but it makes it easier. It's more streamlined. I'm like, but you're, you're not only heading into fraud, waste and abuse on diagnostic testing on laboratory. You can't support why you're doing it because you've never seen the patient. And here's another one that just happened. I was doing a payer audit. It was ugly. And just going back to that nuclear, injecting a patient with a nuclear isotope without evaluating them on what medications they're on. Oh my 
goodness. I mean, I am being very clean in my lack of profanity here. I just think that you're, you're heading for such a nightmare and a liability and malpractice keep going where it, it's just wrong. And so I think sometimes big picture is what you have to, you know, talk to these providers about and the payers are pulling out their hats too and, and pull out their hair and they're just like, what's going on? Um, and it's hard to sympathize with a payer because you see them, you know, so what does Cigna just post? We just, you know, had a four, $4 billion profit. Well, <laughs> That's, you know, don't, please don't tell us that. We don't need to hear that. We want to hear that, you know, you're, you're actually trying to figure out what's going on with support of what's being sent in. But Stephanie, you and I have talked about this. What, what do you get on this? Yeah, so a couple of things that I've dealt with is it's actually more so on the behavioral health side where you have all of the different assessment tools that are available, which, you know, are very helpful. It helps the providers drill down the different symptoms, what's going on with the patient, diagnose the patient and move forward with the treatment plan. But the problem is, is that payers you know, let's face it, they're not going to pay for any kind of baseline testing. And that's really where I feel like a lot of that falls into is just trying to, you know, send these assessments out, see where the patient falls, we'll go from there. Um, the conversation that you're talking about, Terry, is exactly what I've had with different providers. You know, at the end of the day, what are you going to show as far as medical necessity goes. And when you put a timeline together, we're gonna to be able to see that the patient completed a test based on the dates of information that's coming in from the results that they've completed that prior to even being seen. So it's not like you can hide it, which obviously we would never want that to be hidden, but it's gonna be very obvious is my point there. We're gonna be able to tell what's being done in that situation. And one other thing to think of when you think about the provider side, you may think this is a convenience, or as Terry said, you may think you're streamlining a process, but how many payers out there have different um, pre-authorization requirements out there? Or at the end of the day, Terry, with your examples with different diagnoses that don't add up, a lot of times that may not even result as a payable diagnostic test just based on the fact that that was the outcome. So we really have to think about the whole picture and not just from a clinical perspective and what's helpful on the clinical side. And I know that that can be incredibly frustrating, especially for providers, because this, to some extent, uh, payers do dictate what you're able to do from that clinical side, but they're not paying for convenience. They're paying for what's relevant. They're paying for what's necessary and what's completed. And you've got to follow the proper timeline to accomplish that. Well, and let's just clarify too, that we're talking about new patients. So if you have an established patient treatment plan that says in six months before we see you again, we're going to go ahead and do, you know, labs and we're going to go ahead and do a follow-up echo or whatever is established by that provider based on that patient's clinical profile that they've seen, that they've worked up, that they are monitoring, they're under surveillance now. That's okay. We're talking about that patient yeah. you've never seen. So there, yeah. there's definitely a difference there. But you just, before I uh, send it back over to Sean, one thing you mentioned and somebody put in the chat about you know, does a nurse determine, you know, a procedure, is that considered practicing without a, a license? Actually, it's not. There are um, contract provisions. I actually just did some contracting for a provider in Texas, which I don't like to do, but I'm doing it for certain clients. And they actually had in their contract that they signed off on with a, a UHC provider that they will um, be, they will allow the nurse review instead of putting in, I want a peer review. 
And so now I'm putting on that in a lot of contracts. If you're going to, you know, say anything or dispute what I'm doing, I want a peer review, not a nurse review. So just know that they, they've agreed to that in their contract. Good deal. So let me, let me round out this topic um, with this. This comes from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, specific to lab services and orders. And it says, quote unquote, Medicare defines any order or orders that does not specifically address an individual patient's unique illness, injury, or medical status as not reasonable and necessary. As required by law, okay, this is law, Medicare does not accept standing orders as supporting medical necessity for the individual patient. So this is, this is federal law. Medicare has adopted the federal law and standing orders are not appropriate. Now, what Terry is talking about is where a patient has been evaluated by a medical professional. That medical professional has said, this patient has a chronic long-term disease, right? Uh, atherosclerosis or diabetes. And I want them to follow up in three months with another A1C, or I want them to follow up in six months with another, you know, comprehensive metabolic panel. So that is completely different. So Terry and, 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 and Stephanie, you guys hit the nail on the head. All right. I want to, I want to move over to psychotherapy services for just a minute, because Scott, this is another area that we are seeing a lot of issues um, with respect to, one, improper documentation, uh, two, uh, not knowing when you can and when it's appropriate to bill an evaluation and management service in addition to the psychotherapy because the documentation just isn't there from the provider. So let me let me have you speak to this. Um, sure. So a couple of things. And I, I think we've talked about it in the past with respect to psychotherapy. Um, you know, I've said before, and I'll, I'll say again, I think, you know, I tend to see this sometimes when a patient and a therapist have had a relationship that's gone on for a number of sessions. The documentation of individual sessions sometimes feels more conversational, right? The conversation, the documentation from the therapist is a summary of the things that the patient has told to them since the previous time. There really isn't any therapeutic technique. There really isn't any documentation of what the therapist is doing other than, you know, like, like listening in some cases. And so I think it's always important to contemplate psychotherapy as you're working with the patient in a therapeutic process towards certain treatment goals. And while the treatment goals don't need to be a part of every single note, uh, we ought to be able to understand what the treatment goals are throughout the patient's encounter, progress or lack of progress towards the treatment goals, nature of the psychotherapy. Now, <laughs> they're on an EM service and, and it becomes, it can become clear as mud because, you know, oftentimes I just see one giant note and at some point in the note I'll see, um, I also did a little psychotherapy with the person, you know, and it's almost in the note, like we talked about baseball for five minutes, right? Like I did a little psychotherapy with a patient today. Sometimes I don't even see the time. Uh, sometimes the psychotherapy and the med management becomes somewhat convoluted, right? So when the patient's getting prescription medication refills, when the patient's getting uh, evaluated for the efficacy of medication for their chronic condition, even if it's um, 
uh, psychiatric condition, that's not psychotherapy, right? That's problem-focused medication management. And I think, you know, while you don't have to have two entirely separate notes when you do concurrent psychotherapy and an E&M service, they should be well-defined spaces within the note. The psychotherapy time should be well-defined specific to the psychotherapeutic activities. And it should also be noted, I think a lot of people aren't still are not aware of this, is that one of the changes that was made as part of the guidelines pivots or has happened within the last couple of years is an E&M service rendered on the same day as psychotherapy has to be coded based on medical decision-making and not on time. So you can't have the this total time, but at the same time, if you end up documenting a time statement that encapsulates the psychotherapy and the non-psychotherapy, we then don't have a dedicated time to psychotherapy that can be used to support the psychotherapy piece. So I hope I didn't muddy it up further, but I think the key is, you know, the psychotherapy time has to be well-defined separate from the E&M service activities. The psychotherapy time should describe the psychotherapeutic activities and should not bleed into other aspects of the documentation. And when you think about time smart phrases, you sometimes in this instance, stumble into doing that by putting things in your, your macro statement that say, you know, discussed labs or, or any of these activities are clearly not part of a psychotherapy service. Excellent. Excellent. I think that's, that's a great job of clearing that up. All right, Terry, I want to come to you for our last topic. And it is the distinct <laughs> differences <laughs> on split shared services. And yeah. we kind of had an offline discussion between the five of us earlier this morning regarding what's going on with the, um, well, I'll let you go ahead and explain that. Well, okay. So to the listeners, to the watchers, to everybody's out there, one of the things that uh, for all of us, you know, on the, on the panel that are auditors, reviewers, consultants, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make it. So not that we're telling you what's wrong. We want to give you peace of mind that what you're doing is right. And unfortunately, we stumble across things that we're like, uh-oh, we've got compliance issues and we, we have to really bring it to your attention. Well, one of the things that I love is the kind of the black and white when Medicare does it right on some of the regulatory guidance that they give us. Not all the, um, the, the private payers give us that. So they kind of leave it up to, you know, see, you know, go ahead and bill it and take your best shot and see if we pay it, you know, so that's really tough. Well, on a lot of things, I, I think prolonged services, I think on um, certain things with ENM, I think Medicare is, is on target and they, they're more conservative in their approach, which again, I like. What I don't like is when they all of a sudden come up with a rule and a regulation and I don't want to tell anybody. <laughs> so the one thing that came up on the splitter shared visits is that obviously um, you can use either su the substantive portion or you can level the service based on time. Well, AMA says, CPT says that both providers have to be listed. That's exactly what Medicare says. They say both providers need to have a face-to-face -face and non, or can be participating in face-to-face -face and non-face-to-face -face services, and that both providers have to be listed on the, um, in the record. What Medicare though came out and said, and they put it in their rules was that, but, we don't necessarily think that that the provider who submits the claim should have to be there face to face. Who wants to tell a doctor that? I don't. 
And do you really want to be technically correct and, and have to hire Sean or Paul or, or somebody in the, in the legal side of things? I can just see you sitting there and talking to a judge and saying, well, the, the patient was sick enough to be in the hospital. And yes, I built out this split or shared visit, but I didn't see them. I just sat in my office and gathered information from the EMR that I could access at the hospital and did a history, never saw the patient, talked to my mid-level on the phone, and then they did the rest of the work. Oh my gosh. And because we don't have a defined history, what does that even look like? So it's scary to me when certain rules come out that you don't even want to tell them that they exist. And I'm going to throw it back. Actually, I'd like to hear Paul and Scott's on this real quick. I know we're running close to time, but what do you do when you know somebody's going to abuse that rule? Oh, Don't boy. talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I try not to volunteer it. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I can't. Right? Yeah. What do we talk to. about sometimes like the sin of omission, right? Like I, I feel know. like if somebody asks me a very specific question, I have to answer it. But I also feel, you know, again, we used to back in the back in the old days when Sean's podcast first started, we had the what's eating Scott Craft segment. And this is probably on that list. Right. And I'm even going back to what I said a few minutes ago, the reason, what does the reasonable man expect? And when these policies came out, I just imagined a physician sitting in the office, reading labs and notes all day and making phone calls and somehow ending up spending the most time on patient care in the, in the split shared model. I, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it, yeah. I mean, I, I think obviously I can't mislead or, or say the wrong things to the to, to our clients, but there are things that I'm not necessarily going to be, you know, volunteering to them almost in the way that it comes out. Like, well, you know, if you do it like this, you, then you don't do. have to yeah. worry. Like right. that's kind of the, the slippery slope in that case. Yeah. It yeah. drives me crazy. Yeah. No, I agree. All right. So that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. As always, I want to say thank you so much to Stephanie, Scott, Paul, Terry, and to each and every single one of you who has logged on, tuned in, and just hang up with us for the last hour, Scott, you got me thinking. We need to we need to bring back the segment of what's eating right. Scott Craft. I think we need to start doing that again because those were we fun. Might. People really love those, so I think we're going to do that. All right, tomorrow Terry and I will be back talking about, um, well, who knows what, but. I think what we have on the calendar for tomorrow audio is only telehealth. audio <laughs> only telehealth services. Again, uh, going to be a fun conversation as it normally is. All right. So until then, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy. <laughs>